Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is powered by Christianity Today. Hey everyone, happy Monday. Glad to be with you today. Uh, thank you again for subscribing, for being part of this community. We've really, yeah, we just, we counted an honor uh, to continue to tell good, important stories and to encourage and equip pastors and church leaders. Um, a few about a year ago, a little over a year ago, when the pandemic first set in, a few folks in my church decided we were going to start meeting together to pray virtually via Zoom uh, every day, Monday through Friday. Um, the days that I'm off, another pastor takes it, or uh, there's been a, an amazing lady in our church who has really stepped up to take a lot of the leadership of it. But we found ourselves in the first few weeks kind of trying some different things on for size. and And then after about three, four weeks, we settled into a rhythm of praying uh, the, 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 the divine liturgy of, of daybreak that we found in Douglas McKelvey's book, Every Moment Holy. And let me tell you, the book has just deeply shaped uh, my life personally, but as a praying community, the words that we've been praying together for over a year now, it's just been deeply shaping for us. Um, and so I've had this this wild thought of over the course of the last few years, man, I'd love to sit down with Douglas McKelvey and talk about Every Moment Holy. Um, he just recently came out with Every Ho Moment Holy Volume 2, which is about death, grief, and hope. And so I'm really grateful to say we have this long, amazing interview with Douglas McKelvey. So we hope you enjoy it. Uh, we, I, I really think that it is, it is deeply marking, and there's a lot of just great, great little bits of wisdom and incredible things just to glean from this conversation. So we hope you enjoy it. Douglas McKelvey grew up in East Texas and moved to Nashville in 1991 to participate in the early work of Charlie Peacock's Art House Foundation, an organization dedicated to a shared exploration of faith and the arts. In the decades since, he has worked as an author, song lyricist, scriptwriter, and video director. He has penned more than 350 lyrics recorded by a variety of artists, including Switchfoot, Kenny Rogers, Sanctus Real, and Jason Gray. He and his wife have three grown daughters and two sons-in-laws, and he has served for the last four years as a sexton at St. John's Anglican Church in Franklin, Tennessee. We hope you enjoy this interview with Douglas McKelvey. Doug, I've really been looking forward to having this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Doug. Pleased to be here. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was at Q in Nashville, and you led a prayer from Every Moment Holy, Volume 1. And as soon as you were done, uh, quite a few folks at my table and the tables around us were on Amazon ordering the book. Like, it, I mean, it was just watching this thing blow up. It was amazing. But tell us a little bit about yourself and the faith journey behind Every Moment Holy, the Every Moment Holy series. Sure. Um, I grew up in a fairly small town in East Texas. Um, and then after college, made my way to Nashville at the invitation of recording artist and producer Charlie Peacock. Who, he and his wife, Andy, were just launching a nonprofit venture called The Art House. And they invited my former college roommate and myself to, to come and be a part of that. So 
Um, so th that's what got me to Nashville, got me into songwriting, which from a, I would say from an aesthetic standpoint, in terms of, of what I'm doing now, um, where my primary focus the last few years has been the writing of, of liturgies and prayers, that the 15 years that I spent as a song lyricist in Nashville were essential um, preparation for that, um, because in learning to craft a song lyric, it's all about saying a lot in just a few lines mm. and doing so with an eye on the the rhythm and the the feel of the words and using imagery mm. to communicate what you don't have the real estate to spend paragraphs developing so my my first encounter with well, it was with the Book of Common Prayer that that was my first introduction to what we would term kind of a formal liturgy, mm. um, which, you know, that that word in its in its most basic sense is is typically used just to mean the order and context of a worship service. Um, so every church, regardless of how loosey-goosey they might be about their structure um the way they go about it is still a liturgy right but <laughs> but in terms of what we think of as a more formal liturgy where there is a very specific order of a service and you're using words that might have been crafted by generations within the church over hundreds of years where you have these distillations of scriptural truth uh, presented often in a way that is is very aesthetically pleasing as well. My first encounter with that was the Book of Common Prayer when I was in college, and I was just immediately latched on to mm -hmm. it, um, both because it was something I I instinctively saw that I could trust because it had this weight of the affirmations of of generations within the church behind it. And at the time, I was in a place where um, where it was very difficult for me to divide truth from error. Um, mm. I was I was in circles where I knew there was a lot of error, but I didn't know what the the real scriptural truth that should be there instead was so so the, the book of common prayer at that point was was kind of a lifeline it was like okay there's this there are some anchoring things out there even though they're not really within the circles that i'm in um and then it it was something that that for me over the years, I, I did begin to experiment some with writing things in liturgical form, not not necessarily liturgies, but even poetry, mm. where I would borrow that kind of form and try to to imitate it and create a poem in that context. Um, 
the Every Moment Holy project had its specific genesis when I was working on a novel um, for several weeks. I felt like I had just been spinning my wheels and uh, mostly due to my own lack of discipline that I would sit down in the morning thinking, okay, today I'm going to going to write i'm going to make some progress but first i'll check my emails and then i'll <laughs> real quickly see what's going on in the news <laughs> that's never happened um, to anybody listening i'm sure <laughs> and so i was just you know had had a number of days where i just got little or nothing done and i i finally thought i need i really need a prayer i need something that would focus me when i when i first sit down for for my day of work i i want a prayer that would you know that would just be reorienting um that would reorient my heart and mind to my creator to my stewardship mm-hmm. of my time and whatever talents i've been given and also in relation to the people that i'm hoping to ultimately serve community that i want to serve by what i'm writing and so, again, I just kind of arbitrarily had the thought, and I'll, I'll write it in liturgical form, where there's parts for a leader and, and parts for people to respond. So I wrote a liturgy for fiction writers. And I sent that to Andrew Peterson, um, because he and I were about to speak together in a session with uh, author Heidi Johnston, who lives in Northern Ireland. Um, And it was a session about story. Um, And so Andrew responded pretty quickly when I sent him the email saying, Hey, I just wrote this thing. Maybe we could use it to close the session. And he said, yeah, I love this, but I also wish I had a liturgy for beekeeping because that's one of his hobbies. And, and he, he listed a couple other things too. And it was just kind of an off the cuff comment. But as soon as I read that, it's like the whole idea for the every moment, Holy volume one project just immediately was there. And I just realized, Oh yeah, there's, there's something here that really could potentially serve the church in a number of ways it's not just a one-off novelty kind of prayer that i've written for myself but um you know there's 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 something bigger here and so i i I wrote a couple more including the beekeeping one um and put together a pitch and went to rabbit room press a couple weeks later and pitched the idea and they immediately said, yeah, let's do this, but we're just a small little company and, you know, you're going to have to give us time to figure out how we would afford a first printing of this kind of book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it was actually about a year before, before that was in place and they could give me the green light to, to pursue the project. Wow. Wow. That's, it's so beautiful to hear that 
in the midst of doing another work that this work was birthed out of just in that desperation or that longing to be connected with the work of the of creativity that you were already doing. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. There seems to be this, there's kind of an interesting, and, and we're going to get to the sort of the negative side, but there's a there's sort of a renewed interest and also there's always kind of been this uh, skepticism about the word liturgy, correct? Uh, like within, uh, specifically within evangelical circles. Um, but there definitely seems to be this interest in contemplative life, daily rhythms, prayer. You know, you mentioned the, the book of common prayer. Um, what do you attribute this new interest in old rhythms to? Well, I, I wouldn't consider myself an, an expert on, you know, cultural analysis and, and, um, so anything that I say here is just completely, you know, sort of off the top of my head conjecture on my own part. But I do think that, that there seem to have been movements within the church in the last 25 years, maybe, um, where some segments of the church have placed so much emphasis on trying to be relevant and on um, trying to make services entertaining and where, um, where there's this pressure maybe to try to be cool. And I think a lot of people have have ended up feeling burned out mm. by those experiences because sometimes ultimately and I, I don't want to make a blanket statement because there are so many different churches doing different things and some you know some have probably done something really well in that regard but but I think I've been aware of a number of, of, of churches or movements where that that drive to just create something that the culture at large will see as relevant and cool really has just ended up um, producing something that's anemic and that doesn't have a, a staying power for people, and so. I think in the same way that um, that when I first came across the Book of Common Prayer and just instinctively knew that, okay, there's something here I can trust. And it's something that came before me and it's going to outlast me. Um, it's not just, it's not just a blip. Um, and I had, I had been guilty of trying to, figure out a way to, you know, to make the gospel cool and palatable and hip. Um, you know, I had, I had very much been a part of that, that stream. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think it just isn't. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it transcends all of that and it doesn't need us to try to dress it up and make it something that it isn't. I mean, it is, it is truth and it is life and it is scandalous mm. in a way that means it's never just going to be cool 
and you know and the latest trend i mean it 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 just can't and and we are created where there is this hunger in our hearts for a, a yearning for eternity a, a hunger for god a restlessness and if people find themselves in a place where they they realize that that what they're being given doesn't address those things um that it's more veered toward a window dressing um then it i think there's just there's a dissolution it, i mean it's like you know if you if you've been eating just a high sugar diet all the time um you know it it might taste good at first and and be appealing to see the buffet of all sweets but you know after after a little while you're really craving hmm. a, a dark green salad you know which might not have the 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 immediate appeal you know but it's what sustains you it's it's what you need and so i i think in my own journey and i think that that this is true for a lot of other people as well you hit a certain point where you realize you don't want something that you are constantly feeling like you have to prop up hmm. i mean you real you recognize you need something that will prop you up hmm. that's good it's something that you can just relax into in a way, right? Because it's, it's deep and it's, and it's rich and it's not, it's not based on a particular personality in the pulpit being able to, to draw people in. Um, it's just, it's, it's been there since Christ instituted the church and it, is going to continue, you know, mm. till his return when, when his bride is joined to him. And, um, yeah, and it, it doesn't need, it doesn't need all our glitter and, and sizzle and flash to, to justify it. Mm. Um, those who are hungry and thirsty and seeking, um, you know, they will, they will come to the deep well because that's uh, that's what they're seeking that's what they're they're looking for and um yeah there's there's a mystery there that that it's just been so liberating to me just to yeah you know, to be at a place in my life now where i feel like i i have been able to as I said before, to relax into that hmm. because it doesn't need me to, you know, to, to try to make it culturally, culturally relevant. Yeah. And I, I think that I love that image of, I can relax into these words. There is something that is so powerful about not not feeling like I have to bring all my creativity and all of my coolness to this particular thing, but I just come to the presence of God and I use these old reliable words or I use these 
old true methods that continue to, to, to remind me of the presence. And there is something so powerful about being anchored to a tradition that is far longer, it's far older than you, and it will live far past your life. And I think there's something that, uh, I, I agree, I think there's something for pastors in particular that just has this feeling of, we get to enter into that too. And we get to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and we become the great cloud of witnesses that are surrounding others in the midst of that as, as our yeah. life ends and, and we move forward. Um, yeah. So every moment, Holy volume two is out. Um, what a gift to the church. And uh, I, I can only, I can only speculate, you know, 2020 was, was not the year that I would think where uh, it was a good time to release a book about hope, but I love that you, it seemed like this, this idea of death and grief and hope, comes sort of flooding out. Were you writing this before the pandemic? Did this kind of really settle in in the midst of what was happening in 2020? Where did it come about? It was a two-year process to write volume two. So, and I, I think the the print deadline to have the manuscript sent off was maybe October of of last year. So um so what maybe the last seven months or so of writing it was during the the pandemic and mm. and there were some things that I wrote specifically um, in response to that like a, a a liturgy for a time of widespread suffering um, was one that i that I included as a result of of living through those first few months of the pandemic and and um, you know, just wanting to create something that that might be helpful and might serve people during those kind of times. Um, but the the idea for the book itself had its genesis in the writing of Volume One, where I had a list of I don't know how many a hundred some odd topics, um, maybe two hundred topics that either I had brainstormed or other people had suggested or requested. And I knew that I wouldn't get to all of them, but I had expected that I would write a prayer for people who are in that immediate um, experience of, of grief, having just lost a loved one or a friend, someone close to them. But the writing of Volume One was—I mean, it took an emotional toll. It was that one took about a year to write, um, and and by the time I was getting close to the end, I was there wasn't much gas left in the tank emotionally. I was mm. I was feeling pretty beat up and battered, and there was just there was a lot of stress in my life outside of writing anyway during. During that time, some of it was good stress. Like two of my daughters got married that summer as I was trying to to bring the book to a finish. Um, but then there were also a number of of heavy negative stresses, and so during those last few weeks, as I was trying to to get everything finished up that I had been working on, and then trying to also, you know, 
start and finish a few more just to get as, as many as I could into the book. I just couldn't bring myself to start that one. Mm. So at the time volume one was published, I knew that that was the biggest gaping hole topically in the book was that there was a liturgy for the anniversary of a loss, but there was just nothing for someone who was just in that, you know, first numb, shocked state of, of experiencing a, a deep loss. So about a year after volume one came out, so this would have been toward the end of 2018, um, I, I thought, okay, I'll go ahead and and write that prayer now. And we we had the everymomentholy.com website up by then where we had um PDF downloads of the various liturgies available to people. So I thought, okay, I'll just write this one. We can put it up there and make it a make it a free download so that you know anyone who's who's in that situation and needs that could just go ahead and have access to it. And then if there ever is a volume two, which at that time we didn't know there would be, that the prayer could be printed in that volume. So I, I started working on that one and it was, after a few days, it had expanded to, you know, it was maybe 10 pages long, which was way too long and, and very clunky. But I couldn't I couldn't see a part of it that it made sense to get rid of because all of it seemed important. And at that point, I realized, OK, it's probably more than one prayer and there's probably multiple ones. And so I, I split it into five or six prayers because it seemed to have that many different themes in it. And continued to try to refine each of those, but several of those then grew unwieldy and had to be split off. So at that point, I thought, okay, this is probably a short book. You know, it's, it's topically focused on the, the idea of grief, but it, it's probably 30, 35 prayers long. And, you know, we'll, we'll do a smaller trim size for the book. Um, and so I pitched that idea to Rabbit Room, and they said, yeah, that sounds great. But as I continued to work on it, it continued to split off into more and more topics because there are just so many facets to, to grief and the ways that we experience it. Um, and then I realized, well, there's also the whole thing of dying. Mm -hmm. As a follower of Jesus, every one of us has to face that has to navigate our own death and and reckon with our own mortality so shouldn't i include some prayers that would uh, that would serve people in in those situations um and then what about caregivers you know it would make sense to have some prayers for caregivers in in this context so what i thought was going to be maybe a a 3 or 4 month process of of trying to write you know, 30 prayers, um, turned into a two-year process. And volume two ended up being almost 80 pages longer 
than volume one, even though it's topically focused, but just because there are so many facets and nuances and, and aspects um, that, that at a certain point I had to, I had to make the switch from just wanting to be done with this and, and hmm. feeling the pressure that keeps increasing every time I would tell the publisher that we have to, and the, you know, and the marketing people that we have to push back the, the release date again. Um, and at a certain point, I finally just had to surrender to the process and realize I just have to keep going until it seems like everything is covered that needs to be covered. And, um, yeah, so, so that's where we are now. It, we finally reached that point. And, <laughs> and well, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, what is the, you know, you, you, you not only talk about dying and death and grief and hope is in there as well, but what kind of toll does that take on, on the right, you know, on you as you're researching, as you're, uh, as I can only imagine having conversations with people, you know, who are experiencing this and, and even reflecting back on some of your own experiences. So how did you stay healthy in the midst of that? Or what things did you do to help you continue to, to keep moving forward with it? You're right that there, there was a weight um, and uh, just a, a heaviness that accrued through the process. Um, and I, I, I don't think I've really um, rebounded completely mm. from that yet. But it wasn't, like, I don't know, writing volume one, the, the way I described how difficult that process was, it was, it, it was more difficult in some ways. And I think it's because with volume two, that, that gravity that there was to it was, there was something right about it in that so much of it was a result of me being in conversation with people who were in the midst of fresh grief or grief that's years old, but that they're still dealing with. Um, and there were people that I communicated with who were, you know, facing their own deaths, who um, there was one person who, who emailed me and said, is there any way you can send me some of the prayers now? And this was probably a year into the writing process. Um, as they said, I, I don't expect that I'll still be around when mm. the book is actually published. But there were, um, there are friends that I have who lost their son when he was seven years old. Um, and they graciously were willing to, you know, open some of those doors in their own hearts and memories and, and go back. And, you know, they, they were sounding boards for some of the, the prayers that I was writing, like a liturgy for the loss of a child, that I just knew from the outset that there are some things I'm completely unequipped 
to write that that it it would feel presumptuous to think that I could articulate what's on the heart of a parent who lost their young child when that is not a grief that I have personally ever had to carry or work my way through. So I knew that the only way I could I could craft prayers that would truly serve people in those situations was if I did so in conversation with people who had experienced those things and who could tell me what I was getting right and what I was getting wrong and what I was completely clueless to that I should address. And uh, there was also a woman um, who had just lost her husband and her nine and seven year old daughters um, two weeks before we began corresponding and we had a mutual acquaintance who had reached out to me um, to see if I had any anything I was writing for the new book that might be appropriate for the memorial service that they were going to have. Um, and so I had I had sent a couple things and then uh, this woman, Amy, um, reached out to me a couple weeks later just to, to thank me for having sent that. And and then that that really um, began a, a, a correspondence where week to week she was just giving me insight into what she was going through and what what um what difficulties what what encouragements you know whatever it might be that she was walking through week to week in that that process of of such a a fresh and and devastating grief um and you know there were there were things that she suggested um that ended up being prayers that I just wouldn't have have come up with on my own um since I wasn't wasn't personally experiencing something like that so community and the the voices of community just became so essential to volume 2 becoming what it was that um you know, and I'm I'm so grateful to to the dozens of people who who gave insights and suggestions that I just wouldn't have have been able to see on my own. It's in your foreword, you mention um, the about you talk about the theology of death. And I know even before we hopped on the call, you were just mentioning how it's almost like in the research you were finding uh, extremely like the, it seems like there was a, a more robust understanding of death and dying years ago. And so why do you feel like that's an important thing for us to recover um, the church to recover in this season moving forward, just in life in general, but in this season in particularly and moving forward. 
Yeah, I, I think there are a, a couple of reasons, at least a couple. Um, one is that we are we are told to mourn with those who mourn. Um, and, you know, that seems to even be listed in the context of part of what it means to live a life of, of worship. Um, and we have, our culture in, in current times in the West, we've become so much more insulated from death from dying, um, it wasn't that long ago in the history, even of our part of the world, where you know a, a kid growing up is likely to experience the the decline and death of a grandparent in the room next to them while they're a kid, and you know you we read the the stories of of well-known people from our nation's past and it's so common to to read something like they had 10 children two of whom survived into adulthood um and because there was closer proximity to death and and there wasn't the whole uh medical institution or complex where when someone is heading toward death, they kind of disappear from our lives and our community, and then we don't see them again until their funeral. Um, where where we've we've lost a lot of what it means to be a community walking with one another through these seasons. And so death becomes this awkward thing that we don't even know how to talk about when when someone we know has lost a family member we we feel awkward about I, I don't know what to say how do I how do I navigate this process and I think it's all part of the same thing just that death has become this distant thing whereas there was a time when the church had much more of an emphasis and you know i would i would expect that in some parts of the world it still does because um because there's not as much insulation from from death and from those who are dying but but there was a time when even in the west pastors saw it as more of their duty not just to talk about death at a funeral but to prepare people on an ongoing basis um, for their dying and and in so that they might live lives with an awareness of of their mortality and have their sights set on finishing that that journey well and and recognizing that even their dying and the way that they die is a a gift that they can offer to the faith community around them mm. that they can encourage the body of Christ around them by the way that they die and navigate that that last season of their life 
as a follower of Jesus. And I think there's also this disconnect um, where we we don't have a, a, a clear sense of how our dying fits into our life as believers, into, into our pursuit of Christ and our following of him. Um, when we're baptized into Christ's death, and then we begin to seek to practice what it means to take up our cross daily, to die progressively to ourselves and our own desires and our ambitions and the dreams that we have for ourselves that are inferior dreams to what God is, is offering us and, and calling us toward. And I think we, we, we're more confused and perplexed by death and our own dying and it, our mortality takes us by surprise because we're not keeping in view how it, how that last step we take we're still following Christ, and it is part of that same process. It is that final laying down of all those things that we have continued to carry or to cling to or to hope for that are lesser things that are not Christ. And so the process that begins when we are baptized into Christ's death culminates, finds its fulfillment in that moment when we actually breathe our last and die and in that process release all of those other things that we might embrace our savior and be embraced by him so so i th i think there's there's something essential there that we would do well as a church to recover that that understanding that that yes, death is an enemy and it's going to be destroyed. And we don't want to make the mistake of saying, oh, death is just, you know, it's just part of the circle of life and it's just natural. No, it's we're right to rage and rail against its presence because it mm. is it is wrong. But in the context of, of where we find ourselves between the perfection of Eden and you now the the heavenly city that is to come death is the reality and and in that context it it does it it serves a purpose for the the believer it's to the extent that we can walk through our lives with the knowledge that that this is just temporary you know, nothing I'm gaining here in terms of material possessions or power or reputation or popularity is going to last. I mean, those things aren't worth making ends of in themselves. Um, I'm going to have to lay all of this down. So if I'm going to have to lay all of that down anyway, then how do I want to live today? What do I want to invest in that will be eternal? and that that will that will prepare my heart for that moment when 
willingly or unwillingly, I'm going to have to lay all this other stuff down. Right. And so, so in that sense, death, the knowledge of our death can serve us well in helping us to live lives that are invested in things that the, that do matter and that are eternal and that, that we might reach that, uh, that final breath with, with a lot fewer regrets <laughs> and a I, lot more hope. Yeah. I, well, and it's interesting because even, even as, as I hear you talking, I feel like even in my own soul, there's this like, yes, 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 because there is something that's so uh, hopeful about that process as well. And I appreciate the way that you're framing this from the perspective of like, it's not this thing that we just push off to the side and be like, well, it's a good thing. It'll happen. It's the circle of life. It's, it's like, we can be frustrated and grieve and, and enter into that process with, with reckless abandonment, but it doesn't end there for us. Like that's not the end goal as, as believers. And I think too, um, there is something that is so profound to be people who are thinking through that even now. And that, that, that is like the opposite of where, uh, myself and most people within our congregations are being mindful of on a regular basis, right? It's, it happens usually at a funeral. You think about it for a few days or a day or so, and then you're gone. Yeah. But if we begin to embrace that and say, yeah, that's, that is, that's, that's, we are baptized into this death. And, and I really appreciate how you frame it with baptism as well. Um, so even thinking about this, right, and this book and 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 all that we've just talked about, how, um, if you could like give an encouragement to pastors, um, how might pastors use this book in their daily life or in the life of their church? With volume one and volume two, my my hope was that there would be practical applications of these prayers and liturgies, and that individuals, families small groups, churches, would be able to, to easily find some of these prayers and liturgies that they could incorporate naturally mm. into the rhythm of their lives together. With volume two, I, my hope is that, that though the, they're very specific, most of them, uh, prayers to, to different types of grieving or, or different stages in the seasons of, of grief or confronting one's mortality. My, my hope is that, that it will serve the same kind of function, that, that people will find some of these prayers that will speak to their situation, that will articulate their heart in the midst of it, and that they can incorporate into the rhythm of their lives during those seasons of, of, of grieving or facing their own mortality. And in that context, I, I hope that it will be a good resource for pastors as they are ministering to people in those situations. The other hope that I've had for, for the books is that even someone who is not going through a particular situation or you know in, engaged in a certain activity 
in in relation to volume one that the books could could still serve as a discipling tool, a shepherding tool, a theologically shaping tool in terms of an unpacking of what we believe and connecting some dots in that if, you know, we, we look at scripture and we say, okay, based on, on what God has revealed, we know that he is present in every moment. We know that all of life is lived under his gaze. We know that every aspect of our lives are to be an act of worship. But how do we unpack a moment like changing a diaper or how does how does that truth touch on when someone is grieving the loss of a spouse or a parent or a child or is having what might be the final conversation with a friend um so these prayers on on one level are an exercise in trying to answer that question of how does this moment this experience touch on eternity how does how does it find its place in the larger story that god is telling through history and in in a smaller way through my own life um and even my dying and my grieving and so i i think that there's potential that volume two could serve as a resource that that would be a conversation starter that would help to open up some of those conversations that might lead to the church reclaiming a richer theology of of dying and a, and a better understanding of how we can minister to others in in their grief so so i hope that answer isn't isn't too long and and meandering but but as i wrote volume 2 the i i i had both of those hopes in mind that yeah that it would serve practically um in a number of, of situations and and could be a a tool for pastors in that regard but also that it would it would help to to prompt conversation that could lead to to deeper understanding and um and more effective ministry mm. in that regard as well yeah well Doug I'll tell you what I I know even just from uh being with the book for uh, for a few days now it already feels like i've already used it with a few folks within my own congregation and it's already shaped me greatly and helped me name i think that's one of the powers of what happens when someone takes the courageous step to research and have their heart shaped by grief to learn how to bring that as a space of discipleship 
And mm-hmm. what I appreciate about the gift of that is that it helps it helps those who are allowing that to shape and to be present with you to rest into um, the ability to begin to name those griefs mm-hmm. and to be able to actually see Jesus present in those places, moving and working in ways that were, uh, in my experience, that have been unexpected. Um, mm. I think I had a too small vision of of a God who who isn't that interested in my grief, and so I, I feel like for that it's a very important gift for pastors and for ministry leaders, and not just pastors, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I think this is just so uh, helpful and important for us as we continue to understand what it is to be people who um, don't love life to the point where that becomes our idol, but we we love Jesus and we trust Him in all the places that He calls us to be. So, Doug, as we close this conversation, um, I'm really grateful just to be with you today. It's been such a gift to us, to me, to the pastors who are going to listen. But I just wanted to ask you about the dedication. Um, there's a man that you named named Jay in there, and I just would love to hear the story behind how he made the dedication. Jay Schwarzengruber was one of my best friends for, um, I think it was probably 29 years or so. Mm-hmm. I met him the week that I moved to Nashville to work with Charlie Peacock's Art House Foundation because Jay was a graduate student at Wheaton at the time, but he he arrived that same week to do an internship for the summer uh, with Charlie. And um, Jay went on to he was he was a publicist for. Uh, Rethink Records and Goatee Records and Steve Taylor's Squint Entertainment. And then he was the managing editor for CCM Magazine. Um, and then some years ago, he, he took a job as a publicist with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we were all sad to see him go. Um, he was just, he was, he was one of the most honest people I've ever met and was willing to publicly wrestle with hard topics. Um, that was kind of what he was known for was civil discussions online. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was always teachable and gracious in his responses to people who would attack him. And he was just a, he was a great friend. Um, the afternoon that it was it was the day of the print deadline. Uh, the manuscript for volume two had to be turned in later that day. And I was I was working through the writing of all the, the final edits. When I got a call from from one of my other best friends uh, telling me that Jay had just died unexpectedly mm-hmm. a couple hours earlier. So you know I I immediately changed what I had written for the dedication um, and finished the last couple of hours of edits um, in tears. I mean, I think there are literal tear stains on the, on the paper copy that I was working on. Um, but I, I, I worked through those couple hours with tears and disbelief 
and also a tangible sense of hope and joy. Mm-hmm. And it was both. I mean, I was feeling the grief and the loss, but I just had such a strong sense of, I mean, it was like, you know, in, in my mind, visually, I could, I could see Jay um, with his, his unique mannerisms and how he would respond whenever something exceeded his expectations and he would just kind of laugh and shake his head and sometimes Mm. take a step back physically Mm. um, and, and, you know, say something like, now, wait a second. So you're telling me, (laughs) and I just, I could just see him, you know, stepping into that greater reality of the fulfillment of everything that his heart had longed for and having that sort of bemused response of like, wait a second, <laughs> you're telling me that all along this was, you know, this was like this. And there was, there was such certainty that, that my loss, my grief, my sorrow could not be separated from that joy and that hope. And that's why I wrote what I did in the dedication. Um, you got there first, my friend, mm. because I knew that where he was, was where I want to be. <laughs> mm. um, and, you know, I, I think, that that theme of embracing of of being willing to with one hand hold our grief and our sorrow and not to deny it not to numb ourselves to it not to think oh, i just this is wrong for me to be in this place i need to move on and you know take you know, have a, a positive attitude. Not to do those things, but to fully feel mm-hmm. that grief and to give ourselves to it. And yet, with the other hand, to be 100% holding the hope and the joy as well. And, and not to make the mistake of feeling guilty about that or thinking that oh if i feel joy that somehow that's a betrayal Hmm. to this person that i that i love and lost it's not because it's all for the believer for the follower of jesus it's all the same thing right i mean we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and you know jesus gave us the model Mm. of a a god and a man who on confronting death and the grief and the heartbreak and the loss of that wept mm. oh, he he felt it he 
experience from the inside as we do what it means for a human being to be confronted with the unnaturalness of death and the separation that it that it causes and he didn't he didn't shrink from that hmm. you know even though he knew well that he was going to 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 participate in the resurrection of of Lazarus moments later but he also knew that Lazarus was going to physically die again mm. and that you know that Mary and Martha might have to grieve all over again and that you know that that they were still going to experience that kind of loss and heartache in this life so i think jesus example gives us permission to grieve hmm. um but his death and resurrection and his promises to us of our own impending resurrection so give us hope and joy that we can't deny either so hmm. so hmm. the that as as i wrote these prayers it yeah, at a certain point, I was thinking, well, it it seems like I'm kind of saying the same thing in all of them, in that there's this element of hope, but there was no way to get away from it, mm. because you can't tell the truth about the grief if you don't also you know, wrestle with the hope. Mm. And you have to wrestle with the hope just like you have to wrestle with the grief, mm. I think. Mm. But Wow. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. I feel like you just uncorked a bit there. Thank you so much for just bringing that important word to us today. Yeah, Doug, it was great being with you. Thank you again for your time. And again, we'll make sure we include in our show notes just where they can uh, find Every Moment Holy Volume 1 and 2. But thank you for being with me today. Thank you, Doug. Enjoyed the conversation.